Alrighty, let's move on now to our discussion point. There, I've had a very, very interesting week because I, I made the promise last week that I was going to speak into the whole issue of how we pray during the time in which we live. I've actually called it the Great Awakening. And uh, little did I know when I mentioned that last week that there was going to be so much in the media about the Christian faith and how we are now clashing mightily with the culture around us. And so I want to spend a little bit of time just backgrounding what this awakening is all about. And then I really want to focus on what I believe is God's strategy to us to pray and intercede into our times. My personal belief is that it cannot be much longer before the end of human history. There are others who hold the same belief, who knows, but I think we're in that season now. Because certainly in the West, there is now so much strident opposition to the things of the Lord. It's almost as if humanity is now waving a collective fist at God and saying, well, we know you're there, but we really don't believe you and we don't care what you think. And so we've seen stark evidence this week of somebody in a prominent position being sacked merely because he was associated with a Christian church, the Anglican church, as it turns out. And I wasn't going to say this, but I was shocked that somebody in a high position could say something like this. This was in relation to an interview process for a high-profile CEO's job. The president said this, it would, would be illegal for us to ask a question about religion during the interview process. But as soon as we found out, we sacked him. And number one, I cannot believe that anybody can be so stupid as to make a statement like that in public. Clearly, he's done something illegal. Almost certainly illegal. But guess what? All of the experts say, don't bother taking it to court. This has happened in Victoria. The courts will not uphold the law. <laughs> and this guy actually hasn't said anything publicly about his faith, by the way. And uh, he's really said very little. He's had a couple of comments. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. And it just happened to be a high-profile sporting organisation. And certainly the... Conservative commentators, most of them not Christian, but the conservative commentators have spent the whole week talking about it. How did we get to a point such as this, where we have laws that say you cannot discriminate against people 
in employment on the basis of their religious beliefs. So we can have someone, national media say, well, we couldn't ask a question during the interview process because that's illegal, but as soon as we found out afterwards, which was in less than 24 hours, we sacked the guy. Well, they didn't sack him. They said, you've got to choose between this job and your role in your local church. I mean, how could we get to this? And most of the media, the mainstream media, they don't even see anything wrong with this. Man, what a funny old world we're in. We can go to the next slide tomorrow. Oh, I want to actually just explain what this word woke means. We actually had someone visit our church a few weeks ago who asked this question. I might have scared them off because they never came back. But <laughs> Well, actually, woke really means it's the past tense of wake. right? I woke up this morning. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> however, 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 if you dig back, particularly into American history, you'll find that from about the 1950s, there's African-American slang word, or it's an expression, it was called, it was stay woke. And what they meant by that was stay awake to important, to significant social, cultural and political issues. So they were just saying, be aware of what's going on around you. So it was just slang. From about 2015, 2016, commentators on the right of politics in the United States applied the term to denote cultural Marxism usually in a derogatory way. And the word woke now has really entered our, our dictionaries from about 2017. The word woke was defined in terms other than being the past tense of wake. It started, I think, with the Oxford English Dictionary and that went over to Webster's and so on. So it's now in most dictionaries. So it's entered, entered into everyday language. But what's cultural Marxism? Well, if I really knew, I could write a paper about it, I suppose. It's actually been around for a long time. You can trace it back to the 1920s, the, the thinking that has led to what we call cultural Marxism today. Um, it really grew in English departments in universities, and it was actually an approach to criticising literature. But now we've got to the point where cultural Marxism is essentially about assigning people to groups. Essentially, there are two groups in the world, or whatever issue you happen to be talking about, you belong to one or other of these two groups. One group is the oppressors, and the other group is the victims. And you're born into one or other of those groups generally speaking. Common themes addressed in cultural Marxism are racism, human sexuality, social justice, which is usually judged at a point in time, and more recently, climate justice, which is intergenerational. So that's looking across time. So that, very briefly, is what the Great Awakening 
is all about. It's led to a wholesale rejection of what we might call classical or historical Christianity, or in other words, a rejection of any kind of faith which is based on the belief that the Word of God is His truth. And that's why we've ended up with the kind of society that we happen to live in today. A society which seems to think it's okay that if somebody is affiliated with a Christian church, they should be sacked from their job. Or they should be discriminated against in other ways. We had the spectre, and I, I have to confess, I really have to constrain myself. One of the things I want to talk about is how easy it is for us to hate the people who believe in cultural Marxism. I, I listened to a senior politician respond to this issue, and in part, during one interview, he said, well, I'm a Catholic. And I just sat there thinking, the least I can say is what a hypocrite. Because the Catholic Church has stood publicly against most of the legislation that that particular senior politician has implemented. And yet he says, I'm a Catholic. I send my children to a Catholic school. I couldn't. Now he's not the only one. He's not the only one. We have a Prime Minister who says he's a Catholic. The Premier of Queensland said just before the last state election, I hold deep religious beliefs. Now I don't know whether they actually believe what they say or not. But I would have to say that what I observe certainly indicates that they carry around a lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> That's probably the kindest thing I can say. But I, I felt greatly offended. The President of the United States says he's a Catholic as well. And so we had, and so what they're really trying to do was, hey, hang on a minute, look, I'm on your side. And, and you just need to change your thinking a little bit, you know, to be more tolerant, to be more reasonable, to get the bigotry out of your life. Yet, <laughs> they couldn't be more bigoted if they tried. It's, an, it's a really unusual age in which we live. But look, how did it happen? How did it happen? How did we get... To this point. Well, I reckon the Bible tells us how. I reckon the Bible tells us how. And I want to share with you just a couple of scriptures. Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. You know, we see here that God abandons the wicked to their sin. Eventually, eventually, God basically gives up on them. And he abandons them to their sin. I'm uh, reading from the New Living Translation, which I think says it really, really well and very clearly. I'm not going to read all of the scripture because we don't have enough time. 
But in the New Living Translation, this little passage is headed up, God's anger at sin. And it starts by saying, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So on it goes, and then in verse 24 it says this, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that, that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarrelling, deception, malicious behaviour and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. And so it goes on. This is not me speaking. This is the word of God. This is Paul writing to the church or to the, to the, to the church in Rome. Now this doesn't mean God doesn't love them. And this doesn't mean there isn't a way back to God for them. And that's one of the things I want to focus on, but that will have to be next week. But this is a description of what we see in the world around us now. I believe that what happened and the reason why this great awakening has occurred is that God has got to the point where he has abandoned these people to their sin. So they are deceived. They have a particular view of the world, a particular view of what it means to be a human being, which is counter to what the word of God says. There's another passage which is worth reading in this context as well. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. I know the slide up there says 1 to 9, but it should be 1 to 11. And uh, this is where Paul is talking about the end times. I believe Paul believes, as many of us do, that there will be a rapture of the church before the tribulation begins. And that's in part what he's referring to here. Um, his discussion is actually about the revelation of what the Bible calls the man of lawlessness. Now reading this passage... Yes, the revelation of the man of lawlessness will come later. That'll come after the rapture. However, the man of lawlessness operates now and is influencing people 
now. Now, I won't read the whole lot of it again because of time, but I do want to read from verse 5 through to 11. And this is Paul speaking to the Romans. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back? Him there is the man of lawlessness. And it's basically the Holy Spirit in the church that holds all this back. When we are raptured out, the Holy Spirit goes with us. And then there's no holding back the evil that will be unleashed in the earth. And you know what is holding him back? For he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly. And it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. It's the Holy Spirit holding it back. The Holy Spirit resides in us. So when the church goes, the Holy Spirit goes. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles and with all the deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now that is a reference to something that will happen after the rapture it's something that's going to happen during the tribulation but you see the man of lawlessness is at work secretly where's that work happening in the hearts of those whom god has abandoned to their wickedness to their sin they are already coming under strong delusions or as some translations say great deceit they may be the most sincere people on the planet, but they are sincerely wrong and they've come under the influence of the devil. So perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised when we see in our current age the very rapid development of what we might call wokeness. It, it, it's really... Uh, grown since around about 2010. It's a very recent phenomenon, but it is now quite ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere. Certainly in Western culture, it is everywhere. The Bible, I think, gives us an insight as to why that has happened. Social science research suggests that in terms of social thinking, um, cultural mores, you only need about 25% of the population to go along with it before you reach a tipping point and basically the whole society then tips over. I actually read that research just a couple of weeks ago. It's quite robust research and um, so you don't have to convince 100% of the population, a relatively small proportion and then the whole of society tips over. There's a, a flipping of, of culture. So that's where we are. <coughs> you 
Now, before I talk about prayer, I just want to address the issue of why do Christians care? Why, why should we care about it? Like, why should we care? If people want to abort babies, if people want to make a choice about when they should lend their own lives, if people want to make a choice about how to express human sexuality, why should we care? I have to say, I've never read this anywhere. I, I've just felt so impacted by the Spirit of God over this issue in the last week. It, it is really, um, it's, it, it's, like a, it's like a weight. It hasn't been a heavy weight, but it's like a weight on me. I ended up writing this to the Australian yesterday. Um, just as a comment on it, they had an editorial in it where they were very critical of what had happened in the sporting world last week and quite a strong defence of Christian thinking in that editorial and I wrote a response. Now this is almost word for word what I wrote but, but not quite. Classical or historical Christianity teaches against abortion, euthanasia and any expression of human sexuality outside covenantal marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. The reason? Every human life is sacred from conception to last breath. Covenantal marriage in which two become one is the safest arrangement for the upbringing of children. Traditional marriage is the safest social arrangement for women and children, and that is demonstrated by the data. The Australian Institute of Families, which is a government-run body, has published the research. And I've quoted from that research here when we did our three weeks on marriage at the end of 2021. So that the research backs up the Christian view. There is no doubting that the Christian concept of the inherent worth of the individual has been the most civilising force in human history. That is inarguable. Woke thinking clearly delineates between people of more and less value. That's the process. Far from being progressive, it is dangerously regressive. It will take us back to life as it was when Jesus walked on earth. When most human beings had no value. It will take us back to Greek thinking that humanity is divided up into slaves and the others and the slaves have no value. Throughout history, in fact, it has been Christians who have fought against slavery and more recently, of course, things like abortion, euthanasia, and even more recently than that, of course, expression of human sexuality outside of what we would call traditional marriage. And the world hates us for it. But most 
People don't read history. Proper history isn't taught in schools anymore. Most people have no awareness whatsoever of what life was like before Christianity changed the way we thought about people. And I think you can easily put up the case that there has been no more civilising force on humanity in the whole of history other than this Christian idea that everybody matters. Why? We matter because God created us. Every person has inherent value because the God who is love made us. Most of the world looks at us and thinks, well, you just got these ridiculous conservative values. But actually, it goes way, way deeper than that. Because what has driven Christianity through the ages is an unshakable belief that every human being matters. And human beings matter because God created every. You never hear this in the debate. One reason is nobody wants to debate it. Nobody wants to debate it. So I think that's why Christians care. We go to the next slide. How do we feel? How do Christians feel? Well, look, you know what? I have to confess I really, really struggle against anger. Because I want to start addressing this issue of how then should we pray? Let's get really, really mad. Actually, I'm going to argue against that. But first, we could get really, really mad. And we could engage in this behaviour called imprecation. Now, there's a lovely new word for you, right? Try that around the dinner table tonight. You can impress people with this new word. Imprecation is calling down a curse. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to do that? <laughs> Seriously, there's something in me that wants to do that. And you know what? I can find plenty of it in the Psalms. And it appears elsewhere in the Word of God as well. I've listed all the Psalms, which are called by the theologians imprecatory Psalms. I'm just going to read a little sample because I love it. I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Psalm 10, verse 15. Listen to this. Listen. This comes out of the Word of God, right? Break the arms of the wicked, evil people. Go after them until the last one is destroyed. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to stand up on the ABC and say that, eh? <laughs> Psalm 140, verses 9 to 11. Let my enemies be destroyed by the very evil they have planned for me. Let burning coals fall on their heads. Let them be thrown into the fire, which they ultimately will, of course, or into watery pits from which they can't escape. Don't let liars prosper here in our land. Cause great disasters to fall upon the violent. Doesn't it make you feel good? Hey, doesn't it make you feel good? 
Oh, well, I've been reading a few of these psalms this week. But what I've got to say is this, though. These imprecatory psalms and other similar passages are, in my opinion, they're accurate representations of the final judgment. Because a lot of this stuff actually happens in the final, right at the end of the period of tribulation. A lot of this stuff is actually happening. So I think, in some ways, they're prophetic. They are undoubtedly honest representations by the psalmists. They're honest representations of how they felt when they were surrounded by enemies. But, as we shall soon see, there is another way for New Testament followers of Jesus. That's what I want to focus on. Sadly, I actually don't think God intends us to pray that way. <laughs> All right. So what would Jesus do? Well, there's a few hints. In, uh, in Luke chapter 9, I'm going to read some of this because I think it's instructive. I'm reading Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, and I'm switching now to the New King, uh, New King James Version. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, that is the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now, a bit of background here. Of course, the Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. The reason why this Samaritan village didn't receive Jesus was that they knew who was going to Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. So if you hate the Jews and you know there's a Jew passing through who's on his way to the temple in Jerusalem, you probably won't offer hospitality. When his disciples James and John saw this, they did a rod. They got cranky. They got angry. And they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Wow. But he, this is Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Amen. And they went to another village. I won't actually go through that. If you read on, verses 57 through to 62, as they were walking to that other village, Jesus teaches through his responses to people who want to become disciples but don't want to pay the price, what it's actually going to be like to be saving people rather than condemning them. Because Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, some people say that means you didn't have a house, so the, the prosperity gospel's a load of rubbish. It doesn't mean that at all. It means there's no place for me on earth. See, and that's what it is for us. We're sojourners because our real home is heaven. We're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians tells us, right? So we're, we're kind of visitors here, the same as Jesus was, right? That, that's the sense in which he has no, no place 
to lay his head. And then it goes on to talk about people who want to go away and bury their dead and all that sort of jazz. And I could spend a long time explaining what all that means. But really what he was doing, Jesus was using this to tell his disciples something about what it would be like when your attitude is not call down fire, but save them. Totally different thing. What about um, Gethsemane? Remember, there was a, a zealous young fella <laughs> who, like me, got angry. I'm going to read Matthew 26, verses seven, uh, 47 to 54. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I like that! <laughs> I, I would like, I, man, I would like to do a bit of ear cutting. I really would. I'm sorry. I have to go to God and repent all the time. Cause, and I'll tell you why we react, like, we react like this, because God has placed in us a love for justice. See, that's what causes it, but we've got to manage it. See, we've got to manage it. What did Jesus do? He said, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was around 6,000 soldiers in Roman times. How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So he's basically saying, look, you can't stop God's plan. Don't, don't do this. And Jesus said, this isn't the way. Right? This isn't the way. All right, so if that's not the way. It's okay, it would be the way. If that's not the way, what is it? Well, I'm just going to start, if I can find my, my, um, my page. Well, you know what? Jesus taught us how to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. The most quoted scripture is actually the Lord's Prayer. And believe it or not, even in Australia today, probably 30% of people can say the Lord's Prayer off by heart, maybe more, because they've heard it many times, if only having gone to enough funerals to remember it. <laughs> but this um, Lord's Prayer is recorded twice in scripture, once in the book of Matthew, once in the book of Luke. The version in the book of Matthew is a bit longer and that is presented in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus is teaching the crowd. In the shorter version in Luke, Jesus responded to a direct question from his disciples. Now the theologians sort of tie themselves in knots about this, trying to work out, did, did Matthew add to what Luke wrote or did Luke subtract from what Matthew wrote? I mean, give me a break as if that's going to change the world. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think probably these are just two different contexts in which Jesus taught people how to pray. 
right? So we wouldn't expect him necessarily to use exactly the same words. And the way that the, the prayer is structured, and it, it's a pattern, you don't have to do it word for word, but it's a pattern. The way it's structured is it starts off focusing on God and then on our needs. So this is what I want to suggest we do as a church and as, as Christians in this very woke world. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting negative emotion, let's put some emotion into this, the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer could actually be written this way, by the way, given the, the structure of the original Greek, the way it's written, it could easily be read this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer. May your name be honoured on earth as it is in heaven. We know it's honoured in heaven. We read about that in the book of Revelation. Right? That all the praise the honour, the glory, God's getting it in heaven. He's not getting it from all on earth. But that's a good prayer. May your name be honoured on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. Where Jesus, Jesus is the King. And look, that's not just an express, expression of a longing for his millennial reign and then his reign forever after the great judgment. That's not just a longing. That's really saying, now Lord, now Lord. That's it. Our job is to bring heaven to earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope I'm not misinterpreting him here, but theologian N.T. Wright says the whole point of the Gospels is about us bringing heaven to earth. Salvation, yes, but actually that's not the main story in the Gospel. We are saved, that, and that's important. There's no doubt about it. But the point of the Gospels, he says, bring heaven to earth. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We are the ones now who bring heaven to earth. We are the earth's Emmanuel. God with us. Next week, I want to talk about intercession and how we can intercede at this time. I really believe this is important because I, I can tell you this. If I get angry, it makes no difference. It makes no difference. A few people watching the video might get offended. I might get some negative comments, but basically it's not going to make a difference. And one reason it won't make a difference is it's not going to send one ripple into the spiritual realm. 
However, when we pray, things happen. So can I urge you, this week, to start praying. 